Being disabled or having a chronic illness can feel like you're moving forward in reverse. I'm your host, Scott Martin. Join me and my new friends from this underrepresented community as we talk about disrupting the status quo and creating change within the world and within ourselves. Hey, life's a road trip. Hop in. Let's turn on some tunes and go. With me in the passenger seat and managing the radio for this road trip is Rachel Mole. We're going to do something a little bit different, folks. I'm going to bring in a, a video that Rachel did uh, that I think really will give you a great idea about what she is all about and what she does. And we'll be talking about that. So let's see how it goes. I love being disabled. It can be a very strange concept to wrap your head around. How can somebody love something that is inherently wrong with them? But I really do find a lot of pride and a lot of joy in claiming disability as an identity. There's so many things to love about being a disabled person. We have a great community. The disabled community is full of incredible people who have really wicked sense of humor. We're also really, really good at things like problem solving, time management, Existing as a disabled person means that these are a daily skill that we are developing. Also as a community and myself personally, hugely empathetic. When you're disabled and you understand and you see the struggles that society puts in our place, we're able to see that these barriers also extend to other groups of people. And there's only love that comes through that. And being able to understand your neighbor and understand the struggles that they're going through only really leads to a more loving society and really what's not to love with that. Fantastic. I want to talk about this. Two things pointed uh, came up to me. One is time management. And I think that you're talking about when pitching yourself or when someone is pitching themselves to try to get a job, that is damn well something that uh, potential employers should understand about time management. I never thought about it before. Go on to, go yeah. into it. What do you mean? Get into that a little Great. bit more. What do you mean? Yeah. Uh, thanks so much for uh, having me on and talking to me. Um, yeah. Time management, I would say is one of the best learned skills that I have got in my arsenal. It absolutely makes me stand out um, when I can, you know, say I'm going to do something and then actually do it it feels mm. like a pretty basic concept but <laughs> when you've worked with enough people and have looming deadlines on projects and things like that that is genuinely the number one skill that project managers and hiring managers look for in people because they it comes down to trust and unless you trust somebody to actually get the work done when it needs to get done it doesn't matter if they are the most incredibly skilled elsewhere um you know, because it it won't actually end up with the uh, with with the outcome that they want. It just makes sense. And again, I've never thought about it before. Empathy. You go into talking yeah. about that as as something you'd be able to carry in with you uh, to to employment. Go into mm -hmm. that. What do, what do you think has allowed you to be become probably more empathetic than a, a typical person? I think so. I have an invisible disability. And that in itself sets 
its own set of challenges. Um, it is also comes with a, a layer of protection almost that, you know, I can kind of blend into the background when I don't want the attention, when I don't want to mm. kind of talk about it. Um, but it also also makes asking for help very difficult. And I think that what, what that's taught me is that just because somebody presents in a specific way doesn't mean that there's not stuff going on that we can't see. It's like don't read a book by its cover, that, that analogy. Um, so I particularly work within like people and project management. I've done a lot of work within the recruitment space. And I think, well, it surprises a lot of people who don't have these conversations, but I think, you know, especially your listeners will not be surprised that one of the biggest lessons I have to teach and that there's suddenly then a light bulb moment with a lot of people within the recruitment space is the idea that, you know, reasonable adjustments aren't just a ramp or aren't just, you know, working from home a day a week. It's actually all just for the person who presents themselves in a wheelchair. You know, people can have so much going on with their lives that even if they don't um, claim the identity of being disabled, if they're not disabled, if they're not neurodiverse, they might still really need that help and support that reasonable adjustments can also bring. And there's a level of empathy that is required with actually just taking a step back and, and letting any kind of pressure off and just asking the question, what do you need? What can I give you as your manager or as your recruiter to help you perform to the best of your abilities? And yeah, like, like I said, it's it, it doesn't feel like a pretty uh, revolutionary ask, yes. but it it is sadly with within like the recruitment space the more i do this show the more i learn about the um dis disability community and also the flip side or those people that don't take the time or care to understand how things are going it's mm. just it, it's getting away so howden you live in howden which is near york correct yes in so your ways <laughs> In sunny England, God, I love your sarcasm. That's so good. <laughs> Howden, I looked it up. Beautiful town. It's, it's yeah. described as a, a market town. Yeah. Uh, so you probably have quite a few uh, tourists come up there and. Uh, no, things. not very many. Really? Uh, no, it's a market town. So the history of Howden is five hundred, six hundred years ago, even in, like way into medieval time. Howden was the center of the European horse trade. So. It was oh. a really big center um, where we would get um, for, for the summer months. Um, there's like loads of pubs that have stables um, and some of them still exist today. And um, yeah, we, we would we were well known for that. And because it was quite a big center as well, um, we also have a gorgeous, massive minster. So Typically, a town of our size in, in the UK would not have the size Minster that we do, but that is a, a gorgeous piece right in our town centre. But no, it, it is an untapped gem, and I'm 
um, a bit loath to tell people to come visit because I do quite like how quiet <laughs> it is. So, so yeah, it's it's a lovely well, place to My to wife live. Sue and I have been talking about going back, and we were in in London for nearly a week, and we just loved it. But we've been talking about going back and renting a a, a car and traveling around all of Great Britain and mm. uh, just uh, the out of the way places like what you're talking mm-hmm. about. Are you a supporter of any specific football club, Premier League? I'm going to disappoint so many people, and no, no, not not even a little bit. I I did for four years briefly, just by proximity, support um, Manchester City purely because I was within distance of their stadium in Manchester, so it felt a bit kind of like the right thing to do but never mm. saw a football match but um or, or soccer match but no, we get it, it is too. football we get it too. Um, um that's actually yeah. that's actually been my profession for quite a while is, is coaching before playing but yeah uh, i guess manchester city is probably a reflection of how people see the new york yankees they throw a lot of money out there yeah and and bring in you know like holland and stuff all right so speaking of us and soccer i want to find mm. out more because you and I communicated uh, before you came to the United States or you left for the United States and then you came back. I said, okay, we won't talk about it till we're on the show. So fill me in on everything that you did, Rachel. Wow. Big, big trip. It was three long weeks, but I absolutely loved it. And um, it was a funded research trip. So within the UK, we have um there's a fellowship program called the churchill fellowship it's part of winston churchill's kind of family legacy fund and every year they fund lived experience or experts um within specific or or certain areas um everything from inclusion to economic growth to sustainability climate business like so many different topics it's amazing um, and I was so fortunate to have been awarded the fellowship this year. Um, cool. They haven't really done much within the disability space, especially with employment. So really excited to kind of be um, one of the first to, to study this area with them. And um, my chosen topic area is uh, creating inclusive work cultures and the link between that for disabled and neurodiverse employees um, and driving innovation within a business so there's some uh, there's research and evidence but really this trip is about collecting that qualitative on the ground best practice that researchers businesses organizations disabled-led organizations disabled entrepreneurs you know what what are they saying what what's coming out of inclusive work cultures and um so i'm also doing the same that i did in the us next spring around europe which is very exciting um, so I visited uh, DC up to Ithaca uh, with Cornell University at their Yangtan Institute on Employment and Disability. Stayed there for a week and then New York for a week. And I've left with over 15 fantastic interviews with um, mm. some real industry leaders and lots to follow up on. And yeah, the report is is kind of shaping itself in a way that I didn't think it would go down but I left the questions very open-ended kind of on purpose I wanted to see what came out of that um so yeah lo- lots to kind of reflect on well one of the, I, I read something that you had written I believe it was after you came back but 
it says, uh, the concepts and ideas debated were important, but always stayed as concepts and ideas. There was no action. I take mm. you became a bit frustrated at times. So that wasn't about the trip. Um, okay. That that is in relation to. So I started a master's degree here in the UK, um, and it was a sociology based degree and uh, on disability studies. So I knew that I really wanted to develop my um, my research and go go into more of like you know the concepts and the structures that um keep disability studies from kind of and you know it's pretty new it's 40 years old really as a yeah. academic study so a real baby um compared to the others um but i found it very frustrating i am a very action based person i like to kind of get a problem and and solve it and figure it right. out and then implement it and um I ended up leaving my master's degree halfway through, so I left with um, the PG certification, which is like half half of it, um, to then pursue the action that I'd kind of learned the, the research from. Interesting. We'll get up to that. But I have a question for you first, going back to your time in yeah. the United States. Could yeah. you please compare the bars and pubs in the US and, and Great Britain? Oh, I'm Don't afraid you guys have got nothing on us when it comes to a proper oh, yeah. pub. We know. we know how to do it. <laughs> that, that was a setup question for a, a a poke at us Yanks because yeah, you got you walk into a pub uh, in London, for example, and it's just your your shoulders drop and you just become relaxed, and then you get yeah. to order a pint. Yeah, so, and then they continue to drop even further. All right. Well, so, considering a lot of the pubs in the, in London are older than the United States itself, I think it's a pretty, uh, yeah. <laughs> pretty good yeah, head that's start true. on you. <laughs> definitely, definitely. All right. So now let's get into some of the work that you've done. Uh, yeah. You had started an organization. I just have it as SIC. First, tell us what SIC stands for and then and talk to us about how you got into it and where that went. Yeah, sure. So SIC um, is SICK, uh, SICK without the K, and it stands for SICK in the City. Um, it was uh, a blog that I originally started that just snowballed into me then providing some training and training programs being developed and then employment, like uh, placing uh, and kind of mentoring through through placements. It then became a CIC so in the UK that's a community interest company which is like halfway between a limited company and a charity um, so you can still kind of go for that funding and and grants without being as constricted to the rules and regulations that a charity requires which is really great for social enterprises and kind of smaller community focused organizations um, it was genuinely incredible um, building that company I um, I've got so much joy and love for it. Um, it ended up kind of snowballing and branching into many different areas that we didn't expect. I ended up bringing on a co-founder, Alice, who uh, who now runs the company. I stepped back uh, this this year, and it now kind of goes into uh, training for employers, so workshops and 
um, and support with, yeah, still recruitment and, and employee and um, training for disabled and neurodiverse people as well on the workplace and, and how to develop those soft skills like time management and things like that, that um, we often don't quite know how to sell properly on our CVs. Hmm. I came across, because I like to do a lot of reading and, and deep diving into the guests, obviously, before you get on. But I've got three three pieces that I, I pulled from different mm. uh, writings that you've done, and, and we can talk about them. We don't teach disability in school, college, or even most universities in the way we started, uh, the way we are starting to learn about gender, race, and sexuality. What mm. do you mean by that? We don't teach it. Um, well, I don't know about the US, but in the UK, we have... Um often there's like sociology classes at school um there's even at like a level you can take um sociology as like a set a level and it's very much like the conversations around um you know racism that is a mm. conversation that is had in school it is actively taught and gender as well there's a lot of like empowerment and conversations going on with that um but when it comes to disability you know we still exist in a society that segregates disabled children from a very early age mm -hmm. so the vast majority of children in mainstream schools don't have any kind of interaction with disabled peers and it's not taught it's not um you know active there, there are no lessons on the right language to use or um you know how to navigate your career if you are disabled like career advice for disabled kids at school is either non-existent or <laughs> shocking shockingly bad um so yeah the from a very early age i think the social conscious when it comes to being taught about disability is just non-existent you know, I, I substitute teach in, in two different high schools here where my soccer players tend to go to school. And there's one openly, uh, visibly disabled kid in one high school and two in the other. And I know that that doesn't pair up properly with the overall percentages of people of their age group. So yeah. I, I'm not surprised that it, a, a lot of it, they may be hiding themselves, but then again, you know, there might be physical uh, disability mm -hmm. that you can't stand behind. So, yeah, you're right. It's it's not coming out. It's And I've done, I uh, had a degree in, in teaching health. It is never brought up mm -hmm. in health courses. Mm -hmm. talk about. So you got a good point there. And just to talk about it. Another yeah. another artic article, I, I mean, a, a quote I've got from you is, over the past few years, I've been learning, challenging my, challenging myself to rewrite the narrative of the disabled person that the movies and books had taught me mm. that the sick little girl who dies at the end to give their male love hope to give to go into the world a better person that oddity to be looked at laughed at uh, mm. i hear you because it all of a sudden makes you think about how many times it's oh poor yeah. girl whatever and how you described it i thought you did a really nice job and on being pointed Go ahead and carry that yeah. a little bit further, if you don't mind. Yeah, no problem. I think that refers to a very specific movie that came out um, in my late teens, um, The Fault in Our Stars, and it was, you know, based on cancer patients. And um, 
you know, I, I, I can say that I was fortunate in a strange way, I guess, to be brought up in a family that um, there is somebody who is does have a visible disability. So the concept of disability was not a strange thing for me, um, or or an intangible thing for me. Um, but for many people, disability is something they will only see in the TV and the movies and the books and the popular culture that they consume. And most, if not like 99% of these narratives revolve around different negative portrayals of disability. So you have the... um, the uh the inspiration the person who's kind of wheeled out to show the the non-disabled yes. person that life is worth yes. living because things could be worse look you could be this person who's in a wheelchair yeah. how awful is that or you or it's the um the the evil mastermind so like james bond is really bad for this where they portray evil through visible difference so scars or deformity that is you know portrayed as um and this comes i think from um religion as well like the the outward Mm. display of evil they are so evil it's showing up on their bodies um and you know i think that particularly the uh, there was a recent film the witches with anne hathaway the remaking of the, the classic where they chose to do the pterodactyl hands without realizing that that is an actual condition but here are these evil witches with this um hand difference that is then portraying you know people out and about with with that hand difference there were a case like I read about um, some experiences on social media where children were going up saying like, "Are you a witch?" or not, or not being really scared and not wanting to talk to them because they'd just watched this movie where the witches had this, and here was this person with it in front of them. Um, but for me, growing up, the one that really made the biggest impact was the the kind of romantic plot. And as a young woman, you know these romance movies and books are basically what I consumed in great quantities and when it came to disability the only time it was really the main character was when it was a condition that was life-limiting and it was usually uh, the young woman and it was usually by the end she will she would have passed away and there's usually then a chapter from the male perspective where they take this big life lesson from the death of this person. Mm. And it just reinforced over and over again that, number one, I'm unlovable because nobody else had a disability. Like None of the other romances that got their happy ending had a disability. So who's going to love me? And again, this is, a, this is the brain of a 12, 13, 14-year-old. So there's only so much, you know, logical thinking that, that actually happens there. True. Um. And the other one was that um, some great tragedy would have to befall me in order for me to find that connection or that I would have to view my health as a great tragedy in order for me to find that connection. Mm. Um, I very quickly kind of came out of that 
basically because I started writing my own stories. Um, so I wrote a novel at the age of uh, six, started it at 16, ended it at 18, where the main character had my conditions and she was this badass hero. And I kind of there rewrote that narrative for myself and um, was able to do that because I had the support of family around me. Um, but so many people don't have access to to rewriting the narrative that way. Mm-hmm. And especially, I, you know, that wasn't with social media. Now there's social media on top of that. Yeah. I can only really imagine how that's going to impact. And, you know, also interestingly, it gives us a great opportunity to rewrite that narrative for the next generation, showing well, actually what disability looks like. When I'm uh, in a classroom for the first time, say, for example, I have freshmen, which is in our high schools, it's the first time they're coming to high schools. So I address the class right away because I, I tell them about my handicap and I, I say, I, I want to talk to you because it's coming straight from me. I'm bilateral mm-hmm. hand amputee. So we can avoid rumors. Mm-hmm. And it does come down to exposure for people. I've never had a student that seemed to be pushing away from me or putting me down after we have that open discussion and I do allow for questions and sometimes it does get mm-hmm. pretty cool. So yeah, I, I see what you point in. Things have to be changing. <clears throat> Hopefully they are, but you know it comes down to money and so, all right. So one more thing I want to point out that, yeah. that you written. Uh it isn't an act of charity to employ disabled people and we aren't going to cost they aren't going to cost you loads of money or be a liability. Seriously, mm-hmm. how can you say that? They're going to cost yeah. me money because my insurance bill yeah. is going to go up if I'm the employer. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I think that's the probably the one argument that people think that they've got in their back pocket to kind of pull mm. out and and to challenge, you know, the, the things that we're trying to change and improve. But the opposite is true. And research shows that disabled people are more likely to stay with a company for longer they are more likely to use less sick days um, and they are more likely to work harder. And I mean, there's anecdotally, I think we could maybe agree that it's because what finding work is so hard. So once we've found somewhere, we, we can't think of moving on and we'll just stay there. There's also maybe the case of we feel that we need to prove ourselves a bit more. So we work a yeah. bit harder. Yeah. But it all leads into then this this evidence and this research, and I'm, I can share the research with you to to include maybe in the footnotes because I think it's also really handy for people to kind of be able to share themselves. Um, yeah, most shoot, reasonable adjustments are free. Shoot me that, you know. Uh, yeah, we're not we going to be going on until the end of November, but shoot that, shoot that to me. Let's go from there. Let's segue into Molework Solutions Limited. Um. I want to talk about something that's on your about page. <clears throat> I mm-hmm. thought it was very interesting. <clears throat> it describes you. You're yeah. saying it. I've been disabled since the age of 12 with multiple invisible disabilities. Growing up and navigating a world of unnecessary barriers fueled my passion for inclusion. But I saw a problem. I take it that it's simple to say that that's what led you to doing Most Solutions Limited. Yeah. Yeah. So, up. yeah. Um the problem that I saw was through my time at sick and through, uh, you know, just navigating the space as a disabled 
um, founder and, um, you know, speaking at conferences, being invited to to um, speak, you know, internally at companies. The problem was that it was a last thought. Accessibility was the last tick box mm. that came after a project had been completed most of the time. And I was just fed up of kind of coming in and then <laughs> providing maybe a company with a list of 10 reasons why this project wasn't accessible. And then seeing them either have to spend so much more money to redo quite a lot of the work or more often than not, just be like, oh, well, thanks for your time. We'll do as many as we can. And they maybe only do <laughs> one, mainly fix one. Okay. Because they don't have the resources because they've spent their budget because it, the project's done. Um, so that's why I, um, so when I, I left sick this year, I um, with I got this fellowship and was kind of pivoting more into um, like focusing on some writing and becoming a, a, a consultant and speaker. Um, my positioning now is people and project management. I am a darn good people and project manager for literally anything. It doesn't have to be accessibility. Mm. What I bring is knowledge of accessibility. So hire me as your people and project manager, facilitator, strategist, whatever, and I'll join you at the start of your project and I'll be able to do everything else that another project manager would be able to do. But what I'll ensure is that by the end of the project, accessibility is embedded into the process. So when you reach the end, it's not going to be a tick on, um, you know, oh my gosh, we've forgotten. <laughs> Quick, get someone in. It'll be done. Um, and I think that's the kind of um, strategy that is going to change the way that accessibility is thought about within businesses. Because at the moment, it's a performative nice to have. It's a DNI. Oh, what awareness month is it? Let's get somebody in to do a workshop and then forget about it. That is not going to make any real tangible change. So positioning myself as indispensable from the beginning is is really how I'm looking at uh, navigating now what working within um, DNI looks like. Are you? Because you brought up something earlier, it sounds like uh, are you in danger of spreading yourself too thin and trying to <laughs> juggle too many pieces at the same time? I mean, for sure, I'm a multi-passionate okay. person okay. who loves doing a lot. Um, I think what so to give your listeners an idea of kind of maybe what a working month looks like i do have a uh, energy limiting condition so i have um an assistant as well who helps me you know i think that's really important to highlight that you know i'm not just a one person um team i have uh, an assistant who helps out does a lot of like the day-to-day -day admin work um i work on one pro one large project at the moment with um a day for ad hoc um consulting and speaking and then i do one day which is like a personal project so at the moment that's the research trip that i'm doing um once that's finished that'll maybe be writing like there's there's a lot of ways that i balance my time but i also find that that's really important as well for burnout i um i went through burnout earlier this year 
And it was because I wasn't making the time for doing what actually I was really passionate mm-hmm. about. Um, and the way my brain works is if I'm not doing something creative, I also professionally burn out. You know, I, I don't get those ideas. I, you know, I need a balance, not just of rest and work, but also of maybe like the the strategy logic side of my brain and the creative, colorful, fun side of my brain. That's a perfect segue for what I wanted to get into. And this is, this is on your uh, Sage space and folks, uh, the, uh, of course, there will be a link to um, Rachel's website for everybody to take a look at. But on October 13th, you wrote AI, Disabled People's Friend or Foe, a summary of the key conversations at M Enabling in 2023. Could you go into what you found out about where you think AI is and the positives and negatives that we may be looking at? Yeah, I think that some people might be absolutely sick of this conversation and think, you know, well, it's... it's not going to go anywhere or it's the fad. I think AI is mm. the word of the year, according to yeah. um, the dictionary. And um, I think what's really interesting is AI has been around for decades. Like it was actually first developed in the ni- late 1950s. If you have ever played chess on a computer, you That's have AI. played AI. Yes. What's new now is something called generative AI, that's what's being developed now. Mm-hmm. And I am really excited. Of course, I have my apprehensions, but I'm really excited because I think it could potentially be one of the great equalizers within accessibility and inclusion for disabled and uh, neurodiverse people. Mm-hmm. Um, I use AI now, it's completely integrated into my workflows um, from recording meetings to developing transcripts to giving me summaries to um helping me kickstart a blog post to you know the literally i could i could list off so many ways it helps um i think what is the biggest worry for a lot of people having um talked to a lot of people about this topic and as well i'm not a subject matter expert on ai uh, by any means just somebody who's very interested in it there is a big fear about first data, you know, what what are we inputting? Where is it going? Who's using it? Which I think is interesting considering the amount of data that is already out there. You know, if you have a Google account, if you, ha- you know, have logged into any subscription, your data is out there. But mm, definitely do agree, you know, there needs to be more transparency around, you know, how it's being used. The other one is um, ableism and that AI is inherently ableist. There are lots of um, case studies about how it's been used to a negative effect for the disabled community. Um, you know, if people want to read the blog post, I, I uh, highlight a few examples. But what I think it comes down to is remembering that AI is built by people. It's not just created itself. True. It's built by people and it's data that it's used is data that has come from people. And sadly, the majority of people are ableist. Um, 
so it was really interesting so that the m enabling conference was the first thing that i kicked off um visiting in dc and hearing from you know google microsoft adobe kind of the front runners within ai and their software that they're developing the things that they were highlighting their makers themselves were that they just don't have enough data um obviously you know they they were quite rightly um quizzed and and really kind of put through some tough questions um but my my kind of i left thinking a lot about how as a community what we can do and um data is one of those tricky ones where you know we don't want to give too much of ourselves into into a machine in, into a data set i think it also potentially loses the nuance that comes with disability you know it's it's not a one size fits all same condition same symptoms for everyone it's it's really variable mm. um and at the moment data and ai really struggles with variability um do i think it will get there yeah i, I genuinely do i think this is this is here to stay um there was um a framework that was discussed during the conference that i think is also worth highlighting because it's not that this is a completely un uncontrolled area either there is a lot of thought leadership and work going into making sure that the ai systems generative ai systems being developed are um are considering risk so there's something called the AI RMF framework, which is the risk management framework that highlights the seven desirable characteristics, um, safety, reliability, explainability, accountability, transparency, uh, managing bias and enhancing privacy. But at the moment, it's voluntary and it's led by, um, you know, contributed to by experts and thought leaders, not just within the disability space, but across fields um there was also recently um here in the uk uh, the bletchley park ai summit which kind of reiterated the same things that the, this is what they were striving to do but again it's a voluntary signed thing um i think there will end up be regulation but until then we have to make sure that our voices are being heard and I think that comes with using the software and not being afraid to spam the um, software developers inbox with everything that goes wrong. Because if they hear from enough of us, they're going to start listening to us. Yeah, there's, there's, it's up for debate now in our Congress in the, in the U.S. about whether or not there should be regulation. I of course, there's also the preemptive strikes by some of the people who are developing AI mm. to get information out is it's just about the positive. That's all. But mm. I have spoken with other people on the show uh, off the record, mainly because we weren't sure how to cover it. Mm. Some of the kind of horror stories that they've been hearing about once information is out, for example, through uh, an online doctor, that mm. information can be used in negative forms. So yeah. I guess it seems that as of now, AI is only for the companies that have a great deal of money available in order to invest in it. And hopefully they're going to be following things in the direct in the correct way. But if costs come down, there may be, who knows, governments that get involved 
and to a negative standpoint and are able to, I heard one thing, a uh, discussion about um, if humans came up with passwords and passcodes, can't AI just reverse technology that and find out how ways to get in, you know, and this, this person went really way off on, on heck, they can get into uh, um, the uh, nuclear codes from the United States presidency. I mean, it's just, it's really out there. Books have been done on this a long time ago. Uh, maybe we're actually here. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, I want to ask you one straightforward question. First of all, this has been fantastic talking to you because you're one, you're a guest that's just throw out a topic, sit back and let you roll. That's good. What's next for you? Do you have anything in the works that you didn't tell me about? <laughs> uh, taking a break at the end of this month, which good. is very much needed. Good. Um, well, I'm going on a, a, a writing week. So up into the Lake District, a little cabin in the woods. So some good. quiet time and some creative time with, with a friend, which is, yeah, I'm really excited about. Um, and then I will be doing my research tour all over again in Europe. So, yeah, uh, end of February, March time, I'm looking to speak to uh, organizations who are doing something interesting with disability employment, have some interesting um, things around innovation and accessibility. So, yeah, if anybody knows anything that fits the bill, I, I'm literally... Cool planning on hopping on and off trains for, for two and a half weeks okay. um and then yeah my my report will be free to download um by anybody you know I, i'm not this isn't something that i'm just developing for um for the churchill fellowship it's going to be what i hope will end up being a pretty comprehensive um qualitative tool for people who are wanting to kind of showcase what disability employment leading to inclusive work cultures leading to innovation actually could look like um for them and their organization um so yeah watch this space fantastic your show is going to drop i believe it's november 28th so anything comes up between now we're in about earliest october folks you get anything that comes in specifically you know get it to me and i'll throw yeah. it in on the information page but from we'll there, we're gonna, we're going to try something. That uh, sound of the VW horn means it's time to shift gears and get into uh, uh, life's a road trip roundup. I've got five questions for you, Rachel. I want you to just kick back and answer them how you uh, just want to do it yourself. So, question okay. number one. Oh, regular re listeners might notice that I've changed things because we had a couple of questions that just repetitively were. Like Coke was over Pepsi by 95% or something. So we, <laughs> we dumped that question for sure. When road tripping, this is one of our new ones. Mm -hmm. When road tripping, do you, do, you, do you rely on Waze, Apple Maps, or another source to get you from point A to point B? I use Google Maps. Google Maps. Okay. Yeah. Right. That's what we used to. So maybe I should probably put that in there instead of Apple <laughs> Maps. Uh, <laughs> I was going to be shocked if you were to say you were going to use directions that you happen to write down on a piece of paper, uh, like how we used to do them in my day. Okay. So Google Maps. All right. I have a feeling that question is going to really go in that direction as well. Well, if I could also add, I've yeah. recently started using an app called City Mapper. Oh, I saw that. Yeah. For downtown. Does it give you information on when Which... buses are going to arrive and stuff? Yeah, and also accessible information as well, accessibility information, which has been really, really cool. Um, yes. And I will be using it when I'm, um, yeah, in Europe a lot more and unfamiliar with the with the cities. 
Yep. So when I did that, we were in Amsterdam and Paris. I mean, it would give us information, of course, London. So great idea. Okay. What would be your dream car for a road trip? Could be something you, your parents had when you were growing up, something you actually might have now or something maybe you'd rent just to say, Hey, this would be cool to drive on a road trip. I used to have a, um, a mini countryman which was so comfortable Love it. and so comfortable to drive. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I would, it, when I'm, when I'm in the market for, for a car again, that's what I'll be going for again. Yeah. I had the, uh, uh, the cousin of that, the station wagon one, mm-hmm. and then the back doors would open like a barn door, but, uh, Oh, mini is such a nice car just to sit low and it's a little go-kart. Okay. Here's another new question. Um, do you have a go-to snack to get you through a long drive? Something you might bring with you or stop something when you uh, may grab when you uh, stop for gas. Interesting. So I, um, as part of my condition, um, my energy is like really important to make sure I'm maintaining. And I recently learned that um, I should not be snacking on bananas they actually spike my blood sugar so i what i should be snacking on is cheese so i have recently been using yeah literally just um cheese bites and yeah uh, roast chicken and stuff like that just to snack on that in the united states you can find that sort of stuff in the dairy section where it's combined Uh cheese bits with maybe some uh, nuts and maybe some sausage and yeah okay yeah that's interesting. Okay. Um, question number four. What's I'll just I'll say it anyway, but what's the last cassette? Yeah, I wrote it down. <laughs> CD or station on an app that played while you're on a road trip? Uh, it was Spotify. Okay. Um, and I listened to the Diary of a CEO, that podcast. Big fan of Stephen Bartlett. And um, I believe the episode was um, with a dietitian here in the UK talking about ultra-processed food, which was very interesting. Hmm. I haven't done that much. Uh, I definitely don't listen to this podcast. When if I'm I listen to music <laughs> while I'm driving or, or in a car or, or even just passenger in a car, I, I yeah. get so sleepy, <laughs> even if really? it's rock music. Music yeah. puts you... Wow. Your brain does have to have something to focus on then. Yeah, it really does, yeah. Because with music, we can just venture off. Okay. Last question. This is a biggie. What's your favorite road trip memory, Rachel? Anything? Wow. Yeah. So when I was younger, um, the family, um, so we, we live about five hours away from my dad's family. So every single summer we would make the, the pilgrimage down with a very full car to go stay with my dad's family for the week. And they live on somewhere called Mersey Island, which is a small, tiny um, fishing village just off the coast of Colchester that um, twice a day get becomes an island when the tides go up and wash oh. over the road. Cool. And yeah, that um, those five hours would be spent, yeah, locked in a car with my family, but always good fun. <laughs> that is, that, that can be for sure. Okay. I would like us to stay on for a couple of minutes, but I'm just going to mention to our listeners, challenge to likes everybody and keep listening to Life's a Road Trip. Thanks for listening. Check out previous episodes with new ones dropping each Tuesday. If you don't see a synopsis of this show where you're listening, visit our website 
at lifesaroadtrip.podbean.com for more information on this week's guest. This is your host, Scott Martin, reminding you that life's a road trip. 